Well, hello. I am really excited to be with you again today and uh, digging into some really deep waters. Today we're going to look at the genealogies of Jesus as we find in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. I'm Andrew Marquez and I'm just pleased to uh, walk you through this. Uh, this is going to be a, a, an interesting type of study. Some of you don't necessarily care about the genealogies of Jesus, and others of you don't realize that there might be significant issues surrounding the genealogies of Jesus. But I wanted to go through this, especially right now, we're, we're looking at the Christmas season, at least as I'm recording this, and it just kind of led me to uh, address a topic that the truth is I've been looking at uh, for several years, and I just wanted to spend time and nail some things down. I've broken the study into two parts because I got really deep into the weeds here and I didn't want to overwhelm you with everything in one shot. So uh, this episode is going to focus primarily on the theological aspects, the unique characteristics of the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke. Uh, the next uh, episode is going to really center on the idea of how these genealogies might be harmonized, how they might come together. And this is not an easy question. It's one that uh, several scholars just have uh, written off as uh, an idea that w we can't bring these together and it's not worth the time. I do think it's worth, dig worth digging into. And as we dig into these questions, I think we are also enriched with a fabulous presentation of the heritage of Jesus. Who is in the names? Uh, who is listed among the names of Jesus's patronage? And as we look at this, I hope that you're kind of encouraged that God is going to use a variety of personalities in the lineage of Christ. And that kind of uh, really is encouraging to me because if God can use these people <laughs> to bring about the Messiah, you know, surely he could use me or, you know, hopefully he could use me depending on how you uh, equate your own value. But I, there's, there's just a lot here. And so I, I hope that you will stick with this and in, engage. Uh, hopefully this will uh, satisfy some of your curiosities. You're digging in with these questions. And, and then if you're kind of of an apologistic mindset and you want to be able to bear witness to Christ and answer questions that come up, this might be a resource that you can use to help uh, those that are struggling with questions about the reliability of the Gospels, for instance. All right, well, let's begin here. The genealogies of Jesus, as we find in Matthew and Luke. I'm not going to read through the names. Uh, I got, I've got a listing of the names that you can see, but what I'd like to focus really on is the unique characteristics of Matthew from Luke. So here we go. Beginning with Matthew, what we find is there are distinct uh, features that Matthew has. And one of those features is that Jesus' descent is traced from Abraham. Uh, Luke will trace his lineage all the way to Adam, and we'll get into that in a second. But Matthew is very determined to find out who this Jesus is as he relates to David and Abraham. In fact, if we end the Old Testament and we look at the closing of Malachi, it talks about how uh, the temple is going to be established and God is going to send a messenger to prepare the way for his great messenger, Adonai, who will come to Jehovah's temple. And this is an exciting moment because it's, it's uh, that great prophecy that the Messiah will in fact come, that God has not forsaken his people. If we look at Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew arrangement of the canon, we have a similar decree by King Cyrus, who is giving funding to the temple, uh, to the Jews to build the temple, and whoever among the people is going to come up, let him do so. And so we have this aspect of a coming person to the temple to enact God's prophetic timeline. And when this occurs, uh, expect big things. And when we open up Matthew's gospel, we have this statement that almost reads, this is the genesis of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And so it's the genealogy of Jesus. And we know genealogies are a big deal in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, which is a, 
uh, collection of five major genealogies that show God's intent to establish Israel and to establish uh, Judah in particular as the line that the Messiah will come. The king will come from Judah. The scepter will not depart from between his uh, legs until Shiloh comes. You know, so that's a whole different discussion, but it's very exciting. So genealogies matter, and in Abraham's, or sorry, in Matthew's genealogy, he wants to show that Jesus, in fact, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that a seed shall come from your body. That also is picked up in uh, 2 Samuel 7. Okay, so we identify Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And Jesus, being that Jewish Messiah, is loaded to fulfill all the prophecies that are placed upon that messianic figure. And Matthew is very excited to connect messianic prophecies to Jesus. And sometimes people think he is too loose in his connections, but I think he really is pointing us to dig deeper. And we'll do a little bit of that as we go deeper into Matthew's gospel. But Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one descended from Abraham. Matthew also lists four women in his genealogy, and this is unique to Matthew. You would, you, would, you would almost expect that Luke would be the one to include women, because Luke is very pro-women and pro those that are mistreated in his gospel presentation. He goes out of his way to show how Jesus reaches out to those that are misfortunate, that those that are lacking power, and women fit in that group in the first century. But Matthew is the one, surprisingly, who lists the four women. Three of these women are uh, pulled maybe from Ruth's genealogy. We're trying to figure out why did he choose these four and how that might have occurred. And so Ruth's genealogy might be our best place to look. The men of Ruth are linked to the women in Matthew's genealogy. First we have Tamar, who's called the, the daughter of Judah. We get her story in Genesis 38. And she is the mother of a set of twins, Zerah and Perez. And Perez is listed then in the ancestry that goes down to Ruth, you know, who is mother, uh, grandmother to uh, David. And so Tamar linked to Perez in Ruth's genealogy. We have Rahab, who is the mother of Boaz. And this is likely the same Rahab that was at Jericho, who cast down her scarlet thread and the spies were able to escape. And she uh, became a supporter of Israel and an, Isla an Israelite herself. So Rahab, uh, important. Ruth, in Ruth's genealogy, she's there. She is from Moab, and she's the mother of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And then we have Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba is not listed in the genealogies of Ruth, but that's because she comes after Ruth. Now, she's not called by name, but she is referred to as Uriah's wife. She is the mother of Solomon. And so this grouping of four ladies is interesting, and many scholars and pastors and preachers and teachers have worked to try to understand what ties these ladies together, and why does Matthew care so much to bring these women into his genealogy? Really, for Jewish purposes, they didn't need to see the women in the genealogies. They wanted to trace the legal line of uh, Jesus to David through Joseph. And so why would these women be there? Well, if we look at them, we can look at leading proposals, and I think there's a bit of truth in all of these. So let's go through it and see what we can figure out. We know that there is a certain uh, remembrance of redemption to sinners that are shown in these four ladies. And uh, this recalling of their redemption is fitting in a messianic promise, right? It reminds us that Christ came to save sinners, and even those that uh, participated in his lineage were in fact sinners needing the very Messiah that would come from their line. It's kind of neat. We first have Tamar. Let's talk about Tamar. 
If you go to Genesis 38, what you see is that Tamar has a terrible story. And it's one that we don't even teach in Sunday school because children uh, don't need to be exposed to some of the things that occur in this story. But Tamar is given in marriage to Ur, who is Judah, uh, Judah's son. And Ur's mother is a Canaanite, uh, and Judah may have chosen a Canaanite Tamar to marry Ur, and she may not have been a Canaanite, we're not sure. But Ur and Tamar are together, but Ur is wicked in God's eyes, and God strikes him dead, goes out of his way. Judah then goes to Tamar and says, um, you know, goes to his son Onan and says, marry Tamar, perform your brother-in-law duties, and uh, bring up a child so that that child will be a name for your brother Ur, the firstborn. So Tamar is the child bearer, the heir bearer to Ur, who is the first in line of Judah's uh, uh, descendants. And Onan knows that if he has a child with Tamar, that that child will not be counted as his for inheritance. And so he... Uh, practices ancient uh, contraceptive rites and works hard to not have a child with Tamar. And God sees what he's doing, and he strikes Onan dead. And, of course, Judah doesn't know why whoever Tamar marries ends up dead. And so he's concerned about this. And he's got one other son named Shelah. And he does not allow Shelah to marry Tamar. One, Shelah is young, and uh, he's concerned about Tamar. And so he sends her back to her father's house. Well, years passed pass, Judah's wife dies, and Sheila comes of age, and Tamar recognizes that uh, Sheila is not going to be given to her in marriage. So she dresses up as a prostitute and meets Judah on his uh, path to where he's taking care of his flocks, and uh, they sleep together. And in so doing, Judah doesn't have anything to pay her with, so he gives his, I believe it's his ring and his staff, and so uh, then he sends his servant back to, to pay her and she's not there. Well, after a few months, everybody recognizes that Tamar is pregnant, and they call Judah, and they want to burn her uh, for being uh, an adulteress. Well, she comes out with Judah's uh, thanks, and Judah says, well, she's more righteous than I, and then she gives birth to twins, and it says that Judah never knew her again, and uh, her twins are present, Zerah, and uh, one of the children's uh, foot comes out first during birth, and they tie a scarlet thread around that foot, and it's interesting because that scarlet thread is reminiscent later of the uh, scarlet cord, maybe, of Rahab. So anyway, we have sinners, right? Uh, she is more righteous than I, says Judah, and she did not act, act very righteously. She tried to make things work on her own. But this is kind of the way things go. And so uh, there are sinners. Tamar is a sinner. Rahab is described as a prostitute. And so she's a sinner uh, in our first introduction to her. Ruth uh, sometimes is viewed as a sinner. She's a Moabitist, but she converts over to... Uh, the, uh, the religion of her mother-in-law, Naomi. She becomes a, a believer in Jehovah, uh, Yahweh. And as a believer in him, we're like, well, Ruth isn't a sinner, is she? Well, there's debate on whether or not Ruth participated in a seduction of Boaz, uh, making herself available to him, uh, dressing up nice, coming into his tent at night, and uh, lying at his feet. Some are arguing that uh, that implies that more occurred, that they committed fornication, and that then he went to try to make things right the next day. I, I disagree with that view, but... Um, nevertheless, uh, she made herself vulnerable, and it could be viewed in a way of uh, trying to entrap Boaz. So if, if Ruth is a sinner, that would be how you'd view it that way. I'm not sure she fits that category, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's worth knowing. Finally, then we have Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's story is uh, pretty terrible. Uh, we're not entirely sure how complicit Bathsheba was in her affair with David or not. It, it appears that the Bible never accuses David of... Um, 
uh, of uh, assault, but there's such a unequal level of power there, it, it's hard to understand uh, Bathsheba's situation. But of course, she's not even mentioned by name in this account, so it, it views her maybe in a negative light. But if we have these sinful people and these uh, ladies that have been either wounded through sinful behavior or participated in sinful behavior, these moments in history uh, end up incorporated into the lineage of Christ, and God uses fallen people to bring about the Messiah. And it's through the Messiah's work that he'll redeem not only those that come later, but it's that redemption that is applied to his ancestors as well. So that's an interesting idea. We also have the thought that these women represent Gentile inclusion into the gospel, uh, into the line of Christ. Gentile inclusion, again, Tamar may have been a Canaanite. I don't think she was, but we do know that Ur's mother was a Canaanite and that uh, Ur was half Canaanite. And so there, there is this sense that the promise isn't locked into a racial group. We know Rahab for certain was a Canaanite. She was from Jericho. We know Ruth was a Moabitess. And we know that Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, married Uriah the Hittite. And so some argue the reason Bathsheba's name is not mentioned is to accent the reality that Uriah was a Hittite. And so that the race, again, is extended beyond uh, ethnicity to incorporate those from beyond the uh, physical descent from Abraham. And this could be a telling solution that's provided. It would demonstrate God's heart for Gentiles, that he brought them into the line of Christ, and now the, the Messiah will come. He'll also extend salvation beyond Israel to the world. It, uh, it demonstrates that the lineage of Christ is not just a racial lineage, but also a lineage of faith. And this will pick up well with Paul's argument in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, that we're looking at a descent of faith, that Moses or Abraham the believer became the father of believers. It also might call the readers of Matthew's Gospel to walk in repentance, knowing that uh, the uh, Messiah came from a humble uh, lineage in some sense and from Gentile lineage. And so I should not look at my Gentile brother in Christ as less than a seed of Abraham. And this was a fight that was going on in the first century. We also have this unusual marriage or scandal uh, of you. And this would not say necessarily redemption of sinners, but that we have strange uh, marriages that God has pulled together to uh, direct the lineage of Christ. And this idea is that Tamar was twice widowed through brother-in-law marriage, leveret marriage is what it's called. Uh, she ends up then married, or not married, but impregnated by her father-in-law. And that is a, a, a permissible thing under Hittite law, but not under Jewish law later on. We have Rahab, who again is uh, a, a prostitute who marries into the covenant line. Ruth has an extended leveret marriage, probably through a cousin, Boaz, and God still makes it work to bring her into the lineage and to redeem Naomi and to establish the lineage of David. And then we have Bathsheba, who there is great scandal there, but God uses that scandal to uh, bring about Solomon. And so through this, God's providential hand preserves the messianic line through uh, ladies who have been wronged or even done wrong, but he makes sure that the line is secured. We also find that this uh, features of Matthew's genealogy, we trace descent from Jesus, uh, from Abraham. We have these four ladies listed, but then we have this theological arrangement. We know that there are three sets of generations, uh, and these generations are broken up by 14s. Why 14? You know, there's a lot of debate. It's, is it 7 plus 7? You know, that, that might be interesting. Uh, the general consensus is that 14 is a cipher for David's name. And if you spell David in Hebrew, the letters of his name would be four syllables, or sorry, four 
fourth in the alphabet, sixth in the alphabet, and fourth in the alphabet. And together that is the number 14. And so it puts David kind of at the center of this and uh, reminds the reader that Jesus is a descendant of David. So that's, that's likely what Matthew's trying to accomplish here. So we have 14 generations from Abraham to David. We then have David to the exile as 14 generations, and we have from the exile to Christ as 14 generations. Interestingly enough, we are missing some kings in this list. And uh, three of those kings are Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah. These kings are interesting because they are famous in the sense that they follow their mother, Atalia, and she was a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, or Jezebel. And when Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, she actually marries out of Israel into Judah. And it's in that marriage with Judah that she kind of uh, brings in probably the cult of Baal and uh, turns uh, Judah against God to some degree. And it makes sense why her sons would not then make the list. Again, uh, sometimes we have the curse to the third and fourth generations. And so it's almost like Matthew's taking this opportunity to wipe out the Ahab connection within that dynasty. And so Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah are all the children. And there's, this, this is one of those wild stories that's worth reading on your own in 2 Kings 8 and on. Uh, we don't have time right now to go through it all. But just recognize after Amaziah, who turned uh, to idols of Edom that he stole, we have Uzziah, his son, and that king is the king listed in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, and so we, we move into kind of a, an exciting moment because with Uzziah we connect Isaiah, and it's in those visions of Isaiah that we have the Emmanuel prophecies that Matthew will point us to. So he uh, avoids these three kings to help his 14-person um, grouping work and also to remind us of the evil lineage of Ahab and Jezebel. Then we also have a missing king in Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah. Jeconiah is listed among his brothers in the genealogy of Matthew. And this is confusing because uh, Je Jeconiah, to our knowledge, did not have brothers. His father Jehoiakim had a brother, including Zedekiah, who took over after Je Jeconiah uh, as king. And this is interesting. Does Matthew not know the genealogies in the Bible that he's using? The Old Testament genealogies are clear. Why would he uh, make a mistake in this way? And I think the answer is he did not make a mistake. He's, he's driven to keep these 14-person divisions uh, clear. He wants to demonstrate the connection of 14 and to Christ. And so that's motivating. And he's done something very clever here. So in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Jeconiah is sometimes referred to by his father's name. And so in, in doing this, what Matthew has tried to do is double, uh, double count the generation, or sorry, uh, put two into one generation by using Jeconiah, who is sometimes uh, called uh, by his father's name and his own name. And this is kind of clever because it allows him to have that 14 generation mark, but also to uh, kind of clue the reader in that uh, Jeconiah while, while the Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, had no brothers, Jeconiah, being referred to as his father Jehoiakim, did have brothers. But Jeconiah's uncle, Jeconiah only served three months before his uncle takes over. And so he doesn't really count as a full generation. And so Matthew's kind of uh, conflated these two kings into one position because there really isn't much more beyond that one generation to count within the 14 generations. And in so doing this, you can kind of count Jeconiah on both sides of the, uh, the exile, post-exile uh, and pre-exile. And it allows uh, that double slot to count as a 14 moving on to, from the exile to Jesus. 
So uh, again, Matthew is well aware of the genealogies that are available to his Jewish audience, and he's not trying to do anything that would jeopardize the genealogy of Jesus. What he's trying to do is speak their language and uh, show them how significant it is that 14 generations or 14 time slots uh, divide God's salvation history, bringing us to the Messiah. And uh, that might not be something that we're excited about or convinced by today, but it definitely was something that was appealing to his Jewish audience at the time. Okay, exile then to Christ is the final measure there. And so this is how Matthew has arranged his genealogy theologically, and it points us to several exciting realities. One, God perfectly uh, arranged the genealogies, uh, the, the generations preceding Christ, so that he would fit in in a way that is a highlighted time and would speak to the Jewish people of the day. He included four women that likely point us to God's redemptive practices, God's concern for the nations. Uh, also, you know, don't forget that Matthew's going to talk about the wise men who also represent the world coming to the birth of Christ to recognize their true king. He brings these people in, and uh, then he's also kind of showing that through marriage and extreme measures, God will do what it takes to bring about the Messiah, ultimately through the virgin birth, which is about to happen. And so this also sets us up for Mary, who is going to be the most extraordinary of all in the line of Christ, who will conceive uh, being a virgin. And so this is an exciting genealogy, a lot going on there, and it takes us to Joseph, uh, who's the husband of Mary, and we have then the parents of Jesus. Okay, features of Luke, all right? The features of Luke, you can see why I'm breaking this into two parts, because uh, there's a lot here. Uh, Luke, unlike Matthew, doesn't stop at Abraham. He actually starts at uh, Jesus and moves all the way up to Adam. And tracing descent from Adam does a couple things. One, it connects Jesus as the redeemer of all mankind. Rather than just the Jewish king, which was Matthew's concern, Luke wants his Gentile and Jewish audience to see Jesus as the new Adam, the, uh, the new redeemer, the redeemer of everybody. And he does this in a few different ways, but uh, what's really cool is how he identifies Jesus uh, twice as the Son of God. And so let me get into that. It's a theological arrangement that shows uh, Jesus' genealogy after his baptism. This is really interesting because we have Luke 1 and 2, and then we don't uh, hear his genealogy until chapter 3. And you're like, why is the genealogy in chapter 3? It follows his baptism, and if you recall at the baptism, the Father announces to all those present, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That this is my son, and God declares that Jesus is son of God. When you get into the genealogy, Jesus, all the way up to Adam, Adam is called the son of God. And from uh, the first name God all the way down to Jesus, we have a very well-structured discussion, and we see Jesus kind of replacing Adam as this new Adam. And I'll talk about that more in just a second, but by placing it after the baptism, we emphasize Jesus as a son of God. And this is declared by God, and it is encapsulated as, uh, as Jesus picks up that title descended from Adam. We also then have this just little note that a lot of us kind of build a lot on, but it's a little note that said Jesus was about the age of 30 when he uh, was baptized and when he's driven into the wilderness and begins his ministry. This is kind of cool. I, I got this from a, a preacher named Andrew Wilson, and, and he printed an article, but uh, he pointed out some of the cool things about 30. If we think about what, why 30, there are several Old Testament passages that highlight this uh, number, this age. Uh, Numbers 4.3 says that the priests, uh, all of them between the ages of 30 and 50, should report to service. 
And so a priest would begin their priestly duties serving the tabernacle and serving the temple at about age 30. We also know that David became king at age 30 according to 2 Samuel 5. And Ezekiel, we are told, had a prophetic vision at the age of 30. And so what does this do? Luke embeds in this simple reference to Jesus being 30 years of age or about 30. He ties us to Jesus' role as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Ezekiel the prophet, we have the priestly uh, Levitical service tied to age 30, and we have Jesus' kingly connection to David at age 30. And so whether Luke builds a lot into that, it's a fun feature to recognize. And I think part of why Luke moves this to the baptism is to uh, wait till he can declare Jesus' age before announcing his genealogy. So Jesus is then highlighted as the new Adam. And Adam is called, again, the son of God. And when we get into Paul in Romans 5, we'll find out that Jesus replaces Adam, that we have the, in Adam, all you know, sin and all have death inherited in Adam. And now in Christ, we have uh, new life, we have new birth, we have forgiveness of sins. And so Luke is bringing together those theological ideas that the son of Adam eventually brings about the son of Christ. And of course, the virgin birth separates uh, to some level uh, Adam's uh, influence on Jesus's biology. And that has a lot of weight placed in over the years. But just nevertheless, Luke highlights Jesus is baptized, declared the son of God, and he's a descendant of Adam, who is a descendant son of God. This is kind of cool. It also is neat is that Jesus appears as number 77 on the list. So God to Jesus. Jesus is number 77. And so does that mean anything? Well, just remember that Matthew broke his stuff into 14, uh, and that is 7 plus 7. Well, we have 7 besides 7, which makes 77. So that, that's like, does that tie us to Matthew? Well, perhaps, probably not. But the number 77 uh, points us in a few different ways to other things. One, uh, we have 77 was the declared 77-fold uh, vengeance of Lamech on anyone who would come against him. And uh, this idea of 77-fold vengeance in Genesis reminds us of the 77-fold forgiveness in Jesus' parables that we have in Matthew 18. How many times should I forgive my neighbor? Not seven times, but seven times seven. Uh, so we have uh, 77 as uh, reminds us of the year of Jubilee and setting the captives free. And this uh, idea of these weeks of years in Daniel, there's just a lot there in this 77 completion, perfection idea. And uh, just remember when Jesus announces his ministry to the world, He's going to quote from Isaiah 58, 6 that, you know, I'm pronouncing the year of the Lord's favor. So there's just a lot of neat things that are embedded theologically into Matthew's genealogy, into Luke's genealogy. They're trying to show some different things, but they're both showing accurate things about how great Christ is. And in the time of the incarnation, when God sent his son, uh, born of a woman, he was born again uh, in a special way, a way that redeemed those in the covenant, outside of the covenant, and uh, redeems all of fallen man as we uh, find ourselves sons of Adam. We can now find ourselves sons of Christ if we would put, uh, put our faith in Christ. So I hope that is encouraging to you. I hope this is uh, something that you found interesting. And uh, we'll go in next time again and look at how we might be able to connect the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke. That one will be also a little heady, but I, I hope you'll enjoy it. And uh, again, uh, I don't believe we have any errors in the Bible. I think what we have is an opportunity, an invitation to go deeper and to say, Lord, what are you trying to show me through genealogies? All right. I hope you're blessed. Take care.